This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on philosophy and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit truenorth.fm. That's truenorth.fm. I'm David Schenk, and on today's episode, I'll finish that discussion I started last time about competing moral theories and how our confusions in them and our confusions about the category of personhood have led to such moral deformity really throughout our culture, but particularly in K-12 public education today. It's important to get this clear in our heads if we're going to see what has really driven the moral perversity and failure of public education. I take it as a given that it is morally failed and morally perverse. It really is today. It is popular in certain political circles today to reject and to rail against and treat as refuted what they call biological determinism or biological reductionism, they like to call it sometimes. They regard it as bad to be a biological reductionist, which means reducing persons to mere biology. I agree with that. However, the very people who rail against biological reductionism in the social sciences and humanities today, are themselves the most prominent reductionists around. They just aren't biological reductionists. They are cultural reductionists. This position called social constructionism is a reductionist program. It reduces a person down to something impersonal. It reduces personhood down to mere programmable responses to stimuli, like machines. That is no less dehumanizing, to use today's jargon, that is no less dehumanizing and alienating than any other form of reductionism about persons. But this thought, as best I can tell, seems never even to have occurred to the social constructionists in academia and in K-12 education. They just don't notice it. It's never been clear to me how one could fail to notice it, but, but they seem to have failed to notice it. The real dilemma that we get nowadays on account of our implicit utilitarian moral thinking is that we treat people as if they were something other than people, something less than people. Kant called this heteronomy, treating persons as if they were things, not persons, as if they were mere means to an end. Autonomy, he calls, um, treating persons as ends in themselves. That was his way of trying to capture the concept of dignity, of basic default prima facie moral inviolability to any human being just as a human being. The human qua human has a defeasible, and so a default, moral inviolability to them. Utilitarian thinking has literally no space for that. And so that includes all Marxist and post-Marxist thinking as well. They are uniformly utilitarian in their moral reasoning. Kant caught that idea 
but he couldn't really ground it in any of the metaphysics of personhood. He didn't really have one so much. The natural law theorists do. And I have become convinced that this position is correct. It took me a long time. I actually started off utilitarian. It took a very long time for me to come around to this, but I kept thinking about it over the decades, and I have completely come around to it. I think natural law theory is just dead on the money correct. If we have this notion that persons should never be treated as if they were mere things and that there is something truly morally perverse, something wicked, something evil about treating people as if they were things, and I do have that notion big time, I don't think there is any other moral theory out there that can ground that conviction in the way that natural law theory does. Under all utilitarian consequentialist thinking, there's really no space for that. You can hold that there is intrinsic value to each person, right? Sure, and, and any savvy utilitarian will. But that intrinsic value is just, you know, it's going to be a function of they're working as a, a loci of pain and pleasure, happiness and unhappiness and all that sort of jazz. The notion that the right thing to do could sometimes be the thing that produces the most unhappiness is utterly alien to them. They would find that not just absurd, but almost self-contradictory. A Kantian sort of has that idea, but doesn't really quite have the metaphysical grounding for that idea. In natural law theory, the driving thing for, for judging rightness or wrongness, for calculating what to do, and what really defines our approach to personhood is habits, not individual isolated actions, not even individual isolated motives behind actions, but habits. While I was teaching at Messiah College, now Messiah University, in my intro classes, I would always say to my students, and in my first-year seminar, I would always say to my students, at the end of the day, what you really have, what you really are, is one of two things. There are the ways you have treated other people, and there are the lies and stories you make up to try to explain away the ways you have treated other people. And in the end, in the absolute end, that's all you've got, any of us. I'm not sure that's even an exaggeration. I think that's pretty much right. In the end... What really makes me who I am is my moral habits, not my isolated actions, not even my isolated motives for isolated actions, my habits. If I habitually regard other people as complicated biocultural machines, I have no way, because humans are mimics, I have no way of not implicitly regarding myself then as nothing more than a complicated biocultural machine. And then it's all machinery. And then Imago Dei is gone. We are not image bearers of God. We are image bearers of covering laws in physics, out of which the covering laws in biology and out of which any covering laws insofar as they find them in sociology will have to emerge, and initial conditions of the system. And it's all, I don't care whether it's deterministic or anti-deterministic machinery, it's all just machinery. 
Let some of it be brutally random. Doesn't matter. It's all just machinery. There are no persons in it. There are no image bearers of God in it. There is no spark of the divine anywhere in anything. And because there is no spark of the divine, there is no spark of default, prima facie, inviolability. That, I think, is the real disaster of 21st century moral thinking. And really, it was 20th century moral thinking into 21st century now. If we do not recover this idea of persons not being reducible to anything impersonal, moral monsters are the only things that are going to come out of the system because that is morally monstrous, to reduce persons to things. The only moral system, the only moral theory that really captures that notion is natural law. That's why I say at the public K-12 schools, they are so alienating. They are so dehumanizing to the students. They coddle those whom they, you know, choose to coddle and step on the necks of those whom they choose not to coddle. But whether you're one of the coddled or one of the stepped on, it doesn't matter. The entire public education system is intensely dehumanizing. Well, why? The teachers, the administrators, the superintendents, the trustees, the people overseeing the whole system, they do not see those children as children. They think they do, but they haven't really looked at themselves and thought this through. This I'm convinced of from hanging out with people in education departments and teaching colleges and talking to them and listening to them. These teachers do not see the children as children. They see them as little receptacles for, cute little receptacles, but little receptacles for everything of their ideological commitments. They think it is their job to engineer the kid's personality, engineer the kid's moral thinking, engineer the kid's capacity to contemplate this idea or not to contemplate those ideas that is wrong even to entertain these ideas over here, right? The real problem in social engineering, I say, isn't that it won't work. The real evil of social engineering is the extent to which it can work, the extent to which people can be trained into no longer seeing themselves or each other as actual human persons, but merely as things, as machines of a an admittedly complicated and impressive sort. And whether they regard themselves and each other as biological machines or as sociocultural machines really doesn't matter because in the end, they're still just machines. Your son is not a machine. Your daughter is not a machine. You should not give them to teachers who think they are. I certainly won't. If we are going to turn education around in this country, we're going to do it through schools that have actual teachers in them who get it, who see and down in their gut all the way down really believe that little kid over there is not a machine, is not an ideological belief receptacle, but is a person with autonomy, with their own capacity 
for judgment with their own personality that I am not in charge of, that they are much more in charge of, even when they're little kids. It's not for me to tell them whether or not to like ice cream, whether or not to be this other little kid's friend. They have to work that out. That, as I see it, is the fundamental dilemma in public education today and why I do say the entire system is, and has been for decades now, just a running disaster, a moral failure. It isn't which positions we hold in our moral philosophy or in our politics that turn us into monsters. It's the way in which we hold them. You can be on the left, you can be on the right, I don't care. If the way in which I hold to my moral convictions and my political convictions is one whereby anyone who disagrees with me has to be a bad person by the sin of disagreeing with me, I have already gotten everything so fundamentally wrong that monstrosity is the only option left to me. And the only real question is, which kind of monster am I going to turn myself into now? If I don't see the inviolability of persons just on the grounds that they are persons, I will never see the moral dimension rightly. And if I walk into a classroom of nine-year-olds in that condition, unable to see the domain of right and wrong at all accurately, all of the attempted moral teaching and training that I am supposed to, not through my curriculum, but through my pedagogy, right, train them into, will be twisted, will be deranged. Because I will be thinking in terms of brainwashing, not in terms of actually bringing another person to see some truth. If I'm willing to bring another person to see some truth, and I regard that person as a person no less than I am, I can argue with them. I can reason with them. I can turn to the evidence. And that sort of default, not just respect, but that default dignity to them means, even if they're nine years old, I always hold open the possibility that they might be aware of some evidence that I have overlooked. I won't just assume that I have to be the one who is correct here. There will always be the possibility in my interaction with this other person that they have got something that I have failed to see. And because of that, I will never function as an ideologue. I will never function as someone who insists on the truth of these propositions over here before we can even have a conversation. And because of that, the little nine-year-old kid will always show up to me when I first walk in the door in the morning as a little kid, not as a soon-to-be-trained receptacle for my moral and political convictions. I got a bit strident today because I've been watching this for more than 20 years and getting more and more disappointed morally in what I see in public education. Next time, I'm going to discuss how this failure to see the category of personhood leads us to ruin our own lives, how it spreads so much misery in this country and in this culture, which it does do today. I'm David Schenk. This is the True North Podcast Network. And on it, this is Philosophia. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Thank you.